you've ever heard today. Just depends how my voice holds out. I've pushed it a lot during the last service, and uh, I'm going to try to cut back a little bit for this service. But uh, we are into the Christmas season, and we're glad to do that, to begin a a series of messages on Christmas prophecies. You know, when I gave my heart to Christ many, many years ago, my friends thought I was nuts. They thought I lost my marbles. I remember hearing the talk, you know, it came back to me. It did. It came back to me. Uh, People thought I went off the deep end. People that uh, were my friends in my college days and through my youth, they'd heard that I had given my heart to Christ, that I'd become a Christian, and they didn't really understand that. And I understand that now, looking back especially. When you're on the outside of Christianity, looking in, trying to look at it from a distance, and you don't really know much about it, it can look very odd. It can look very strange. Why would, why would a person give their heart to a God that they don't see? Why would people pick up a book, an ancient book, we call it the Bible, right, and be devoted to it and tote it around and go to things like Bible studies? Why would you pick that up all of a sudden, start to study that and make that a valued possession in your life? To a secular mind, to a non-Christian mind, all of that looks really mysterious and perhaps even antiquated and maybe very foolish and ridiculous. And I had a sense in my mind and my heart way back then, those many years ago, when I became a believer, a follower of Christ, that God was calling me to become a witness for him. And it was going to cost me something. It was going to cost me friends at times. It was going to mean being misunderstood at times. It was, it was, it was going to mean something that I didn't always appreciate. People wouldn't always get excited about what now excited me. My new interests, my new passions, my new hopes in life, my new trajectory wouldn't always be something that they could feel good about or understand easily. And I had to accept that, and I had to respect their right to misunderstand it and to not, not be even, even uh, wanting to have great interest in it. Looking back, uh, that's just part of the deal. You know, following Jesus Christ is frankly pretty countercultural if we're going to honestly do it. Jesus said it's not the easy road if we're really going to follow him. I think I'm, I'm still trying to accept that reality in my life because like you, I like to fit in. I like to be popular. I like people to like me. But following Jesus, it means that I have got to be willing to let go of that many, many times. And I know that it's important that your life, that my life, is a positive witness for Christ. And I ask you today, if you're a believer... Do you think your life is a positive witness for him? It's important that it is. Keep in mind, keep this in mind. During your whole existence, which frankly is a long time because you have an eternal soul, during your whole existence, your earthly existence here is just a small part of it, right? Because heaven is a long time, it's eternity. But during your whole existence, your time here on this earth your human time, if you will, your, your time before heaven, is the only time, really, that we have where we're going to be exposed to non-believers. It's our only time to be a good witness to them because they won't be in eternity. They won't be there. And so we don't really get a, a whole list of second and third and fourth and fifth chances to be good neighbors and, 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 and people that love our neighbors to Christ or love our friends to Jesus, our non-saved neighbors, because they won't be in eternity. We only have them for a limited time in our realm of influence. Once we get to glory, that's only for believers. There's a limited shelf life, if you will, 
a limited time, limited opportunities that we have to be these witnesses that we're called to be. So we need to just accept that, don't we? We need to be ready to say, Lord, help me to, to go against the grain at times and to accept being misunderstood, if that's what goes with the territory here of being your follower and, and shining my light and pointing people to Christ and, and living for you. Help me accept that. And it just tells me, you know, today matters. My witness, your witness, our witness, it matters. And today, today matters. It really does. You know, the judicial systems of the world in which we live in recognize the role of witnesses. Witnesses are important. Witnesses can make or break a case in the judicial system. And our Lord recognized the importance of witnesses to the authenticity of who he was. Jesus didn't just show up and say, hey, just believe on who I am. Now, he pointed to at least four different tiers of witnesses to prove to people that he was a positive, real, authentic Savior of the whole world. Pretty tall claim to make for him to look at people and say, which one of you accuses me of sin? Who among us would ever say that to anybody? Anybody could, that knows us could say, here's, here's where you sinned, here's a sin. It's a sin for you to say that, you know? Uh, but Jesus could do that. He knew who he was. He knew his witness was, was, was strong, but he didn't even go with his own words. He pointed to witnesses about who he was. Now, briefly this morning, first witness that he's pointing to here in John chapter 5 was John the Baptist. Let me just read John chapter 5, verse 35, or excuse me, starting at verse 31. Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. He's referring to John the Baptist. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He's speaking so redemptively. He's speaking about his mission. He's saying, I want you to look at what John said, that you might be saved. I want you to believe in what he said about me. His testimony, his witness. I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Second witness that Jesus points to were the very works that he did. Remember what Jesus said about the works that we do? He said, people, you will know people by their fruit, by the works that they do. Well, he pointed that out in his own life, and of course, he was the Messiah. He did incredible works. In John 5, 36, he said, I have a greater witness than John's. You, you, you believed in his witness and what he said about me? Well, I have a greater witness than that. The works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. He said, I've, I'm giving you proof. I'm giving you living proof that I am who I say I am. Well, his witness was even strengthened further. He pointed to the, a third witness, and that is the, the witness of his Father. John five thirty-seven to 38, he said, The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. He was saying something really about the callousness of their spiritual hearts there. He was speaking to people who were religious people, but he was saying, you really don't know him. You know, you know him on an intellectual level, but you really don't have, have a personal close relationship with him, because he has spoken about me. He gives an example of that with the fourth witness, the scriptures. He said, you search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. That's John 5.39 is where that's recorded. What scriptures did, he, did they have that he refers to? They had the Old Testament. The same Old Testament that you hold in your hand right now. They had that. He said, you search those scriptures. And he wasn't saying that in any kind of a demeaning fashion. He's saying, he was basically applauding them. He's saying, you're using those scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life? They weren't haphazard about it. He was saying, you're students of the word because you think that in them you will find eternal life. He says, but they are testifying of me and you don't see it. He's saying, you're missing it. You're missing what they're testifying of. They're, they're all about me. And he's speaking about the Old Testament. That's powerful. Sometimes we as well-meaning New Testament people, as Christians, will sometimes tell people, you should read the Old Testament because it has allusions or, or kind of hidden references to Jesus. Are we kidding? Hidden references? Little clues? It's blatant. It's powerfully poignant with pictures of Jesus. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 714, the text we're looking at today. Who is that about? The virgin birth. It's Jesus. The New Testament interprets it that way. It's vivid. That Jesus was saying to the first century listener, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Well, it's they that testify about me. They don't just give you little hints and clues. They're testifying of me. They're a witness to who I am. Now believe, he says, and you will be saved. But intellectual knowledge isn't just enough to save us. It just, it just isn't enough to save us. We can have that. They had that. Their problem was not intellectual, but theological, spiritual, moral. Their hearts were hard because he says that. He says, you refuse to come to me, John 5.40. In spite of what they knew of the scriptures, he says, you, you refuse to come to me. You do not receive me. This is the human condition. You know, in the days of, of the birth of Jesus, do you remember how the religious people in the city of Jerusalem didn't even go down to Bethlehem to check it out? Do you remember that? King Herod said, well, what's this? What's this I hear about a Messiah being born down there? And, uh, and the scribes looked into it, and they said, well, Micah, in the Old Testament here, it says, oh, he's going to be born there, but we don't think this is it. And so nobody went down and checked it out. That shows a hardness of the human condition when God is at work in the midst of humanity. I mean, he's at work. The Son of God is born six miles from the capital of Jerusalem, and nobody has the sense, the religious people who should have had all the sense in the world, to say, wow, this is it. This is the Messiah that was predicted in Genesis 3.15 and predicted here and here and here and here, and now we're seeing this happen, and there's signs, and let's go look. Nah, nah. What's going on? What's on TV tonight? No, they didn't have TV. But they didn't even go check it out. It tells you something about the kind of the hardness of of men's hearts, the callousness of of the human heart to not see what God was up to. Now, a few people did. A few simple shepherds did. I mean, the angels appeared to them, and they said, those are angels. They they listened, and they went and beheld the Christ child. They said, whoa, what is this? God will always find an audience, but, but often the world sleeps and ignores what he's really doing, but there'll always be a few. 
that'll watch and be, be sensitive and say, oh, he's up to something here. Well, I want to come to a particular prophecy today, one of those testify of me scriptures. And it's in the, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which if we date it, which we can easily do, we know the timeline of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Seven, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. So seven centuries. That's a long time, right? Well, God spoke to the, the king in Jerusalem at that time, and a guy named Ahaz, and that guy had a hard heart. I won't give you all the context because I don't have time in the sermon to do that. I could give you a whole message on history of Israel in that time. But God, God graciously puts forth a, excuse me, <coughs> a, uh, a promise to Ahaz. He says, Ahaz, he says, ask me for a sign. I want to show you. I want you to test, test me. I want to do something big, give you a sign. Ahaz says, nah. And he literally sits on his hands, you know. You know I don't want to test you. I don't believe you can do anything. That's kind of the, the king's attitude. Just like, nah. Wow. So God in protest says, I'll give you a sign. I'll tell you something, king. And then God speaks this word, which the king wouldn't live to see because it's going to come in the future. God says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't ask for one, I'll give you one. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Ahaz, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Seven centuries from now, Isaiah didn't have the brains or the spiritual good sense to even figure that out. But God was saying, you know what? You don't want to push, ask me to, to show you my hand. I'll show you, I'm going to tell you something big that you can't begin to get it. But we get it, looking back on it, and God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to keep my messianic promise that I made way back when, and it's going to come in the future. I'm going to intervene in human history in such a big and beautiful and wonderful way, it's going to blow everybody away. And you and I are standing as onlookers, if you will, spectators on this much of history, and we're saying, wow, look what God is doing. I hope that takes your breath away what God is doing here. This is just huge. It's so, it's so awesome. We're only looking at just a scant bit of the history here, but we're looking at God's promise, at God's promise to send the Messiah. And we know that the word Emmanuel itself means God with us. So not just a, if a virgin birth isn't enough, if a virgin conceiving a baby isn't strange enough, and that's pretty strange, right? That doesn't happen. God says, I'm going to do something impossible. Not only that, but it's going to be an amazing baby. His name, is, his name it means God with us. Oh boy, that's kind of a double whammy there. Is God doing big things? Can you appreciate it? Can you sense it? Yeah, yeah, he's doing huge things. Well, human beings such as we are, we love to argue. We love to contest. Oh, that can't be. A virgin birth when we say virgin birth, we're really talking about a virginal conception. We say, well, that doesn't happen. It takes a male and a female to, to, cause a, to, to, to make conception. You know, next to the resurrection, the most debated and controversial event of Jesus' life is the virgin birth. About 100 years ago, liberal theologians really began to debate this. You can go back in the, the annals of theology and look at that and see how it really began to foment about, about the late 19th century, early 20th century. A lot of people just started dismissing the miracles of the Bible and saying, well, that's just impossible. You know, who ever heard of a virgin conception? You know, the, the early writers of the New Testament, they must have just wrote that in. Mary must have really conceived that baby naturally. And then the writers of the New Testament said, no, it was a virgin birth. You know, God did that. And, you know, think about that. If that's true, 
then our whole salvation is a hoax. If God didn't do what the word of God says he did, then what is our salvation? It's just a, it's just a concocted story, right? Um, and so I would contend and would argue that it's, the Bible is true. It, is, it's, it means what it says. It's not phony. It's not fake. You can believe in what the Bible says about the virginal conception. In fact, think of it this way. If God can create the universe, if you believe that he can create the universe and create human life, is it a far stretch that he could create a baby by the power of his Holy Spirit in a virgin? Is that hard for him? When he himself says, nothing is impossible for me, would that be hard for him? He who creates the stars, you think he could create a baby? Or you know, send his own son, who's, a, who's from eternity, but put him in human form inside a womb of a, of a virgin young woman? You think he could do it? I don't think it's even a question of can he do it. I think if we raise the question, I don't know if he could do that. I think we have a deeper problem. I think we have a deeper question of do we even believe that God can do anything? I don't think we have a problem really with a virgin birth idea. I think we have a problem with do we believe that God can do anything? Do we believe in God? It's probably our bigger, our bigger question then at that point. Because that's nothing for him. That is nothing for an infinite God to do this. And so it can be debated, but I, I would argue that it's a, it's a moot thing. The reasons the fulfillment of the virgin birth or conception is important is that it's a matter of biblical authority. If we throw it out, we say, well, I don't believe that what the Bible says on that point is accurate, is true. Well, then we're throwing the authority of the Bible out because the Bible declares it, Isaiah 7, 14. And then in the, it, it says it's going to be a virginal birth uh, of the Messiah. And then the New Testament interprets that that way, not once but twice. And I've listed in your outline both references, Luke's Gospel, and also um, in the other gospel that I mentioned to you. Let's see. i better get my reference here for you. Or Matthew, of course. Matthew's gospel. Matthew 1, 21 to 23. So you can look at those texts as soon as you're ready to do that, but I'm just going to hustle and get through some slides here so I'm not playing catch-up. Let me just say this. If the Scriptures are not truthful in what they declare about the Savior, if Jesus isn't virgin-born, when the Bible says he would be, then salvation is doubtful that he's who he said he is or that he can save or he can do anything. You see how, it, it, how that puts everything into question? And I think that's how Satan loves to operate. He wants to put a seed of doubt in believers' minds, like, eh, I don't know if you can really believe that. Remember, that's what he did to Eve in the garden. He put just a, a little bit of doubt in her. Well, did God really say that, you know, if you eat this, that this is going to happen? And she raised doubt. he raised doubt in her mind, and then she took the bait, and boom. He raises doubt. He wants us to doubt the scriptures, doubt the, the truthfulness of them. And it's easy to take the bait. Easy to take the bait. I want to come to you with some lessons of the virginal conception. First of all, salvation. Because we believe it's true, and we accept the scripture saying that it's true, salvation is obviously then supernatural. Your personal salvation is what I'm referring to and, and mine. Well, let me just bring you to the text here, and maybe you've read it already here. Let's read it from Luke. It's in your outline as well. Luke chapter 1. In the New Testament, you only have two references to the, to the virginal conception, but that's all you need. What's cool about this is they're independent of each other. Luke and Matthew didn't compare notes when they put this together. They are independent historical references and recollections of the virgin birth of the same event, and they agree with one another. And they both draw from Isaiah 7.14. The Scripture interprets itself. 
It interprets itself accurately. It takes this text, this Old Testament prophecy, and it says, here it is, fulfilled. And there's no disagreement. There's harmony in it. So I'm reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel. Now remember, we're 700 years past the time of Isaiah's prophecy. We're in the first century A.D. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Angelos is the, is the Greek word, means messenger, and this is what angels do. They are messengers. Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. There's the word virgin. Now, in the Greek word, it's different than in the Hebrew word, but guess what? She was a virgin. <laughs> it's confirming what the Old Testament passage said. She was a virgin. And you know what it means? It means not just that she wasn't married. It means she was a virgin. <laughs> That's what it means. I'm being a little facetious there. It, it means what it says it means. Because scholars like to debate that too. Well, it doesn't mean she was really a virgin. No, it does mean that. We look at, there's other words that the Greek authors, that, that Matthew could have used there. There are other Greek words that he could have used that would mean she was an unmarried woman. But he used the word specifically that means she was never, she had never consummated herself physically with a man. That's what it means. Which is exactly what Isaiah meant which is exactly what Luke's gospel means here and Matthew's gospel means. So they all agree. She was a virgin. So anyway, I'm making my point here. Uh, It's a dead horse. I just want to make sure it's really dead. Okay. (laughs) So uh, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled. Who wouldn't be? If, a, if an angel, an apparition of a living angel appeared before you, who wouldn't be troubled? She was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. Think Isaiah seven fourteen here. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus had different names, but uh, Emmanuel is, is among them. Jesus is another one. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That couldn't be true of anybody unless he was eternal, right? But the Son of God is eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a, oh, oh, there it is again, I'm a virgin. How will this be? She knew who she was. She knew her physical estate. She knew she was never with a man. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. That's another miracle. And that will, it doesn't say it here, but his name will be John the Baptist. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Salvation is supernatural. You know, Jesus, the word Jesus, comes from the, the, the word Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. Jesus comes to save, and he does the work. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. Salvation, you know, Mary, Mary didn't really even have a lot to do with this, did she? She was the recipient of God's plan to be 
the carrier of the Messiah, but she didn't even choose to get pregnant. God said, you're going to become the carrier of the Messiah. Salvation from start to finish is God's work. Salvation is fully a gift of grace. The biblical texts identify nothing particularly deserving about Mary. Now, she had qualities, I'll grant you, that God could use. She had faith. She had dedication. But she didn't even have a husband. She simply accepted the grace freely given to her. She simply said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. She didn't say, Yeah, I merited this. I'm deserving. There's something special about me. No, she just said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She was simply a recipient of God's grace. Salvation is fully a gift of grace. And the Bible backs that up in other places. Our salvation is not of ourselves. Paul said it to the Ephesians, salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. And Jesus, the Savior then, is utterly unique. He's utterly unique. A great uh, evangelical theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem said this, God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother. I think you and I relate to Jesus in one way, in one large measure, because he came to this earth in some ways the same way you did, the same way I did. He was born of a human mother. We relate to a Savior who walked this earth after being born on this earth in much the same way you and I did. And yet Jesus didn't have a human father in the same way. That is because God is his father, and he was divine. And God overshadowed the mother, Mary, and impregnated her by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's divine, and he's human at the same time. What a deep mystery that is. What a profound thing that is. And it makes Jesus so utterly special, so utterly unique, such an incredible Savior. I'm putting the quote on the screen for those of you who want to see it in its fullness. His full deity or divine nature is now evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. Since the fall of Adam, our first parents, the Bible says that we're all under sin. We all inherit original sin. Jesus, to be your Savior, had to be sinless, didn't he? He couldn't be a sinner. The Bible says that he was perfect. The Bible says he was tempted as we were tempted, but he was without sin. So how could he be born in a human, through a human, and yet be without sin? Well, think about this. Think about this, and I think this ties into the virgin birth significantly. He didn't have a human father. So the, the, the sin lineage, if you will, through Adam was broken. He didn't have the human father that we do. And so that was broken. Now his mother, we would contend that Mary was not sinless. There are some who would believe she was, but the Bible doesn't speak to that. It doesn't teach that, that she was somehow sinless. How, how did he not get sin transmitted to him through his human mother? I think the text answers that sufficiently for us in the text that we read from Luke's gospel. When God told her how she would become pregnant, it says this uh, at verse, verse 30 of Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And she says, How will this be? And let me jump down to verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God shielded His Son from His mother's sin. I believe that personally. I think the Bible would support that. The Bible nowhere says that Mary was sinless, but she was the carrier of the Christ child. It does say that unequivocally. And it says that God put the Christ child in her. That, that the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in her. But he must have also then shielded the, the, the natural sin of a parent that transmits to a child. He must have prevented that through that in that conception process. She says, how will this be? And, and he answers in that way. Because Jesus, we know, was sinless. And that passage ends with verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. The sinless Savior is born to a woman who is herself in need of a Savior, and he saves her as he comes to save the whole world. So lessons of the virginal conception, the fourth is God's power and sovereignty over nature is on display in the virgin birth. That shouldn't surprise us. We serve a great God. Let's not get too comfortable with the predictable, with the mundane we, we do. We kind of like the predictable. I think we kind of like the mundane. But God is a great God who does great and mighty things. Let's not limit our great God. You know, in the Bible, we see a miraculous birth in the story of Isaac. I love that story. In the birth of Samuel, in the birth of John the Baptist. Those are all miracle stories in their own right. But then God trumps all of them when he, when he sends his own son for us. In the birth of his own son, now that's a miracle of miracles when he sends Jesus because that's a, that's a birth story uh, of its own kind. That's bigger, it's bigger than all the rest because that's, a, that's a, a, a birth a birth like that's so different than the rest of them because it's the, the birth of, of a woman who's never known a man at all. There's not the, the joining of two parents in, in a regular conception. But God's word declares nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. And so the disciples said it well. The disciples who walked with Jesus, who knew him, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said the word became flesh. The word is another title for Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Do you know him, friend? Do you know him? Because he came for every one of us here. He came for you, and he came for your neighbor, and he came for your parents, and he came for your children, and he came for your grandchildren. And he, he came for you. Do you know him? Is he your savior? I hope he is, because the Bible says that salvation is found in no one else. God didn't send anyone else. He didn't send Jesus plus someone else. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you know him today as your Savior, you're ready to receive again these elements that symbolize his sacrifice for you, for your sin. His body and his blood were given up for you and for me. You're ready to commemorate his death and his resurrection. I'm going to invite you to come, uh, those of you who are serving communion, deacons, and uh, encourage you to take these elements today as they're distributed to you.